0: The following program is recorded content created by The Truth Network.
1: So I asked myself last night, if if I could speak to millions of people today on behalf of God, what would
0: I say?
1: God saying to his people today, what is the Spirit saying to the church? If God could get our attention, get our focus, get our ear, get our heart, get our mind to really lean into what he's saying. Is there a particular burden or emphasis or are there are things that we must hear? Obviously, each of us individually would have different answers for that. But what about the Church of America? 866 three four truth is the number to call 866-348-7884 and let me tell you what types of calls I'd love to take today this is Michael Brown you're listening to watching taking in the line of fire but whatever means you have I obviously have the privilege of coming your way five days a week we've been doing it now an hour or two a day for well over 13 years but every day I take it as a sacred privilege and some days we, we're locked in. You know, Friday we open the phones, Q and A on any subject under the sun. Thursday, thoroughly Jewish Thursday. We're going in that direction. But other days, I might have interviews, I might have subjects that are just—it's everybody's talking about it. We need to to seek to bring a kingdom, godly perspective on it. Other days there are things burning in my heart. I feel a need to share. And there are other days that can be wide open. And today was one of those days. So last night I. I, I kept praying, saying, Lord, which way do we go today? A bunch of controversial things happening in the news. I thought we could weigh in on that with the Kenyan perspective. I didn't feel to go that way. And then went back and forth, back and forth. And I asked the question, by God's grace, we, we get to reach a lot of people through all those different platforms we have. We can, we can reach a wide range of people, which truly blesses us, which we take very, very seriously. But I thought, okay, what if suddenly... All broadcasting stopped. And I could just speak to millions of people. I don't mean the lost, the nonbelievers, because obviously you preach a message of salvation. But to God's people, if if there were tens of millions, what what would it be? In other words, I want to take it with that seriousness as if that was the case. But what would I say? And And I felt as I just stayed before the Lord. And obviously, this reflects my own burden and my own calling and the way I'm wired. But I just felt it would be words to stir you, words to challenge you, words to inspire you, words to stretch you, words to strengthen you. So that's that's what I'm gonna do today on the broadcast. But I gave out the number 866-34-TRUTH. If there is an inspirational quote, a favorite of yours, that has really ministered to you over the years, that has been especially meaningful to you, that you feel, yeah, that, I want to share that with others. I want to give you the opportunity to do that as well. 866-3487-884. If there's a scripture that God has been bringing to mind that you feel this is something especially important for the body to hear today, even internationally, feel free, give me a call, or in our YouTube chat, in our Facebook chat, go ahead and post it. I want to read some quotes to you from an article that I posted. Oh, when was this first posted back in 2013 and and reflects key quotes that I've meditated on and stirred by often re quoted over the years. It's an article called 10 quotes to rock your world posted on many different websites, but on our ask Dr. Brown page, 10 quotes, to rock your world, and I noted that over the years I've committed to memory numerous quotes that have stirred my heart and impacted my life. And in the days of the Browns' revival, we used to post some of the best, most succinct quotes on the large marquees in front of our ministry school because so there's only so much room. But we wanted these quotes to be there every week that would jar, that that would stir. So I note today with the explosion of social media, we can post and tweet these quotes day and night the edification, and even transformation of many here are 10 of my all-time favorites. Now, the first one is from John G. Lake. The first one is one that when Nancy and I were talking the other day was right at the top of the list of quotes that have stirred us and, and quotes that she's brought to me to say to me, come on, this is how you have to live. John G. Lake lived from 1870 to 1935, Extraordinary missionary ministry in South Africa and then great healing ministry in America. Here's what Lake said For the sake of a dying, suffering world, count the cost, pay the price, and set the captives free. Let me read that quote again For the sake of a dying, suffering world, count the cost, pay the price and set the captives free. Let's step back and think about that quote for a moment. We know that the gospel is free. We know that the gifts of God are free. We know that we can't earn anything from God. And yet, God works with us. God responds to our prayers. God rewards us according to faithfulness. And God entrusts things to us based on desire, based on commitment, based on trustworthiness. It's often been said that God's not looking for talented people, but for faithful people. And God will fill us according to our hunger. When John Lake was a successful businessman, he was working, I believe, in the Chicago Stock Exchange and was tremendously prosperous for man at that time in the late 1800s, early 1900s but he became desperate for more of the things of the Spirit. He recognized that there was a place in God. There was a dimension in God. There was something in God beyond what he had obtained, but he saw in the word that these things were promised for today. He was not into sensationalism, but he wanted the reality of God, the reality of God's power. And he said, you know, in his own words, his own experience, he said, I, I believe I was the hungriest Man forgot on the planet right there. In other words, in his own life, he got to that point of complete desperation. And he said, here, here he is. I mean, he's a prosperous businessman. He's successful, married with children. And everything's going fine in his life. That could be you. Everything's fine outwardly. Your personal life's fine. Finances fine. Health fine. Family fine. But inside, something's eating at you. Something's gnawing away. Something's saying there's got to be more and that's that's the situation he was in and, and he said he would, he would be walking down the street in chicago and just suddenly groan and people would look at him like what what's the matter cuz oh the hunger was so great and then he was filled with the spirit it was dramatic it was life changing and then he went in the power of that to south africa started an incredible church planting movement and many many thousands of people converted many miracles of healing and, and many works, uh, multi ethnic, multi racial works, which were challenging then in South Africa. But it was the hunger that drove him. To this day, one of my favorite sermons is John G. Lake's Spiritual Hunger. You can probably read it in the excerpted form online. Of course, he died before things were recorded, so it's in written form. But that has stirred me to this day. Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, yes? Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Jesus says in, in John seven, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. I've often used this analogy, but you may be going to your favorite restaurant and planning on this decadent dessert at the end. But By the time it's dessert comes and they say, okay, would you like this? No, 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 no dessert. I'm filled. I'm stuffed. I ate too much. That's how it is with many of us. If God was to come with, with fire, if God was to come to visit us, if God was to come in, in, a, in a way of, of filling us in, in, in new dimensions, there's no room. It would be like pouring buckets of water on concrete. There, there's nothing to absorb, no way to absorb. But if we're hungry and thirsty, God, there's got to be more. God, I want you to use me. I, I want you to be glorified through me. We're in a messed up world, a hurting world. It's always been hurting and messed up since the fall. Lord, we only have one life, and we want this life to glorify you. How hungry are you? How thirsty? That's what Lake was saying. Blood for the sake of a dying, suffering world. Pay the price. Get God's power. Set the captives free. And there are so many people really hurting. So many people lost. So many people bound. So many people dying. Just think if we could come with the reality of God to see them set free. Jesus came to set the captives free, and he sends us out with a message of liberation. Maybe these words, instead of thinking about millions, maybe it's for one or two. Maybe you're, you're listening said, "No, no, that, that's me. That's for me. Do something with that hunger. Go after God more deeply. Uh, Alex says on Facebook, a big topic in our church today is the baptism of fire. Some say it's hell. Some say it's the filling of the Holy Spirit. I'd love to hear your take on what is the baptism of fire in Matthew 3, Luke 3. Matthew 3, verses 10 and 12, John the Immerser speaks of the fire of judgment, the fire of hell for the nonbeliever, for the hypocrite. They'll be chopped down and thrown into the fire. Matthew 3, 11, he speaks of Jesus baptizing his followers in the Holy Spirit and fire. My understanding is that the terms are interrelated. Now, two separate things. This is for believers, not the Holy Spirit, one thing, and fire, the other thing, but the Holy Spirit and fire, two sides of the same coin. The baptism of the Spirit is a baptism in the fire of God. It is a purifying baptism, a refining baptism, an empowering baptism, a baptism that sets us ablaze. So it is not the Holy Spirit, one thing and fire, another thing, but the Holy Spirit and fire. What happens at Pentecost in Acts, the second chapter? What happens, right? Tongues of fire sit on each of them. So it's not just that they receive the Holy Spirit, begin to speak in new languages, but the tongues of fire, right? It's the fire of God that comes with the Holy Spirit. May that fire burn more brightly in you and me. May we have a fresh encounter with the Holy Spirit and fire. May the passion for the things of God burn so brightly in us that nothing else will matter compared to that and that everything we do will be in a God-first orientation. That will be for the good of all those around us. So we got a bunch more to share. When we come back, I want to read an amazing testimony to you. The phone lines are open, 866-34 Truth.
0: Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome friends to the line of fire broadcast. Michael Brown,
1: delighted to be with you. 866-34-TRUTH is our number. Let me share with you another of my favorite inspirational quotes over the years that have stirred my my own life. Uh, W.E. Sangster, he was a Methodist preacher, lived, I believe, 1900 to 1960. And I read his quote in Leonard Ravenhill's Why Revival Tarries. At the beginning of each chapter, he had a number of these quotes, some just staggering quotes. And I've quoted this often. I've, I've quoted it in writing. I've quoted it while teaching and preaching. I tweeted it out earlier this week. Listen to what W.E. Sangster said how shall I feel at the judgment if multitudes of missed opportunities pass before me in full review and all my excuses prove to be disguises of my cowardice and pride? Shall I quote that uncomfortable quote again? How shall I feel at the judgment? Because all of us, We'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5 and Romans 14. We will give account, not, not to be sentenced to hell, but as believers, we'll give account for our lives. How shall I feel at the judgment, if multitudes of missed opportunities pass before me in full review, and all my excuses prove to be disguises of my cowardice, and pride. Yeah, let's, let's think about that one for a moment. So many preachers today are so careful not to condemn, not to lay a guilt trip on people who already feel guilty, not to shame those who already feel ashamed. And obviously as preachers of the gospel, our goal is never to condemn believers, never to shame believers, never to degrade and denigrate believers but we often go to the other extreme where we never bring conviction we never speak words that the holy spirit uses to convict we never make anyone uncomfortable and in order to do that you can't preach through the Bible, you can't preach through the new testament reading the new testament reading the words of jesus reading the words of paul reading Read the words of John, Peter, anyone in the New Testament, it's going to make you uncomfortable. It's going to challenge you. It's it's, it's going to call you to examine your life. All the letters do, all the Gospels do. If you read Revelation, aside from the stunning imagery and everything in it, it, it's going to challenge you. And, And words to the churches there, five out of the seven churches in Asia Minor, those words were calculated to make people very uncomfortable. And the parables of Jesus we're calculated to get people to think about their lives with a view of eternity. And, and then with that in mind, we now respond and receive grace to live lives that are worthy of our calling. We receive grace and help so that we don't live in condemnation, we don't live in bondage, we live in freedom, but freedom to give our all to the master. Now, I'm going to be totally playing with you. If, if Nancy asked me, how come we forgot to lot that, lock that door like are these little jobs each day at the end of the night make sure xyz doors are locked or leaving something out that i was supposed to put away or something you know or she may just text me a picture it's like oh i forgot to do that you know, the picture says it all my first impulse is to give an excuse to explain it blame it out. i mean that's my first impulse it's sorry just forgot or whatever, got distracted, wasn't listening. But my first fleshly impulse, which sometimes makes it to my lips, other times doesn't, is to make an excuse. But reality hits because truth is truth. Reality hits because I'm married to Mrs. Reality. But many times we coast through our lives. You know, look, Let's say you never got on the scale and all your clothes were just really loose fitting. You might not realize how much weight you'd put on. Let's say you never exercise. You may not realize how out of shape you are. Well, how do we examine ourselves in our own lives? I feel it's so important, friends, for us not to let the one life we have just skip away. And, and, And at the end of our lives, we look back and think, what did I do with the one life I had? And you might say, what do you want me to do, man? Do you know how busy I am? Do you know the responsibilities I have between job and family and church and all that? My goal is not to lay another burden on anybody. My goal is to say, does your life belong to the Lord? To, to be this friendly voice, prodding, challenging, encouraging. Look, I, I push hard when I work out by myself. But when I got a trainer pushing me, that trainer is going to push me. He's going to push me. Much harder than I push myself. As much as I want to, His product is going to push me further. Let let me be like that trainer today, saying, "Come on, come on. There's more to be had. Come on. There's more possibility. Have have we explored the possibility of prayer? Have have we found out what we'd happen if what would happen if we gave ourselves more to to missions or witness? Have have we found out about loosening a spirit of generosity to help those in need or? What would happen if we fasted for our kids? I mean, there there's so many things that we go through our whole lives, never explore. And then when we stand before God, all of our excuses, like Sanctus said, just proved to be disguises of our cowardice and pride. All right, let me, let me encourage you with a testimony. So every every day on Facebook, these things will pop up. You have memories from a year ago, five years ago, whatever. Sometimes we pictures with the grandkids, and I'll repost that. Can you believe that was seven years ago or four years ago? Sometimes it'll be out ministering overseas and it's like, wow, look at that. I can't believe it was so long. Well, this testimony comes up that I posted six years ago and to be totally candid with you, I had forgotten it. Maybe because it's something that didn't happen directly through me that I was involved with and therefore would remember more, but let me share this with you. All right. So I posted it six years ago, a friend of mine currently in Turkey recently met with believers from the underground church in Iran. Here's an incredible testimony that will stir your heart. Jesus is Lord. And, and and you say, and and by the way, Gene, there's a shame that's a destructive shame. That's what I was talking about. When I feel ashamed because of my sin, and that leads me to repentance, that's healthy. But there's a shaming that's unhealthy. That's what I was referring to. But thanks for your postlet and and. Let me clarify that here. All right, so you say, Mike, I don't know if I should believe testimonies like this. Well, when testimonies like this are multiplied over and over and over, when you see the supernatural growth of the church within Iran, many missiologists say after China, this is the place where the church is growing most rapidly around the world under an oppressive Islamic regime. When you have close friends or colleagues who have worked for years in these environments and they share testimonies, I have every reason to believe this. Okay. One girl, when she was about 10 or 11, her father left her and her mother uh, uh, left her and her mother and moved to another city. So they were all alone and very poor. So this is in Iran. Oftentimes they could not eat. Then when she was about 13 or 14, her mother got cancer, and they went from being very poor to beyond poor. She became her mother's primary caretaker. Hospital bills were nearly impossible. She would go to these Shia shrines and pray, so Shia, Muslim, and pray eight hours a day, every day for healing for her mother. Her mom kept getting worse. One day when she was 16, someone told her about Jesus. After hearing about Jesus, she went home and her mother was very sick and within a few hours she died. So the little 16-year-old girl, she was all alone, just frozen with shock. She said she stood there for six hours next to the body trying to figure out what to do. Then she remembered that this person had said that Jesus can heal her mother. She prayed to Jesus for the first time, and her mother suddenly started coughing. She woke up. It was nearly fine. They went to the hospital, and after a series of tests, they could find no signs of any cancer. So they both committed their lives to Jesus, as well as one of her close friends and a few cousins. This was nine years ago. Her mom is fine and serving the underground church. The girl is a full-time evangelist who works for the ministry I was with sharing the gospel eight or more hours a day, despite the risk of torture, etc. I asked her about the risk and her response was simple. Suffering is a basic part of Christianity. It would be an honor for me to suffer for Jesus. I love him so much. Come on. Let me share her quote again. Suffering is a basic part of Christianity. It would be an honor for me to suffer for Jesus. I love him so much. Friends, that's the spirit of brothers and sisters I work with all over the world. I was just with a Croatian brother based in Germany now. And like me, he's worked in India for many years. And like me, he has been around these committed believers. And he said that two of the pastors they work with in India were just arrested. They were in jail for 30 days, he said. So they were fasting and praying for their release. They came out after 30 days rejoicing, because they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. And out of the hundred or so men in the prison, they were able to lead 16 to Jesus who wanted to be baptized. After they left the prison, and you can be sure that treatment there is pretty miserable in an outlying area, small prison in India, where you're in prison as pastors, they came back with paint and said, would it be okay if we painted the jail just to make it better for the people that are here? That's the gospel. That's Christianity in action. But friends, there's a price that's paid for obedience. And that's a question we have to ask ourselves. Is that who we are? If following Jesus meant suffering, meant imprisonment, meant torture, meant death, would we not sign on the dotted line? Obviously, we can only go through these things by God's grace, but would we say, hey, no, I I signed up for a better arrangement. Get rid of the guilt, go to heaven, have my sins forgiven, prosper. I'm not taking up any cross. I'm not denying myself. I'm not following Jesus. Well, then you're not a real disciple. That's an easy one. That's simple. I encourage you. I urge you. Get born again. Find out what it really means to have Jesus as Lord. You'll never regret it.
0: The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. I just tweeted out these words.
1: I was thinking about this. Okay, what if I could just say six words? Six words to every believer in America. You know, take you by the shoulders, look you in the eyes, fully engage you. And just six words... What would they be? Well, the first six that jumped up to me were these. Go for it. Live for God. Go for it. Live for God. I'll say it once more. Go for it. Live for God. Friends, if, if there be a fresh determination in each of us, however it works out in our lives, that, that pursuing the Lord heart and soul giving our lives, our bodies, our minds, our, our very being over to the purposes of God, wherever we are. Most of us is going to be in our day-to-day life. Most of us is going to be in the midst of working jobs and raising families and getting our educations. It's not going to be most of the time preaching on a street corner for most of us or most of the time on a foreign mission field for most of us or most of the time preaching to masses in a stadium or most of the time reading books that millions of people read for most of us This is going to be in our everyday lives, in the mundane details of everyday life. Even if you're pastoring a congregation or leading a ministry, there is the mundane living of every day, which is out of the spotlight. I would say those words, go for it. Live for God. I I want to encourage you today, friends, as the purpose of my broadcast is to exhort, to strengthen, to equip it, and to, to challenge you to press in for everything that God has. I, I, I want you to consider that all day long, no matter what you're doing, even if literally, because of job and kids, other responsibilities, ministry things, literally, you don't have 10 minutes to stop what you're doing before you collapse at the end of the night to just get alone, quiet your heart and pray. Even if that was the case one day, if it's the case every day, I would say you're too busy. But even if that was the case one day, all through the day, you can pray. All through the day, your heart can cry. You know, if you ever fast, you're normally conscious of the fact that you're fasting. And that fasting, for me, is like a constant prayer going up to God. Oh, I still want to spend time in prayer while I'm fasting. But that that hunger or that feeling of of deprivation, for me, that's a constant reminder of the thing that I'm fasting for. Look, if you, if you lose a loved one, your heart's grieving, that pain's there all the time. You actually feel it like a physical pain, but that's, that's there, the, the grieving. Or if you're concerned, someone's in an ICU, you don't know if they're going to live or die, you, you carry that heaviness with you. If you're worried about something, that can be 24-7. Well, it can be the same thing with an attitude of prayer or hunger. God, I want my life to count. God, as as you're sitting there at the computer doing your work, as as you're sitting there putting items on 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 the shelves in your store, as you're driving the kids to school, as you're working out in the gym, whatever you're doing, there can be this heart cry. Oh God, there's got to be more. God, there's got to be more. Look, I was I was at the dentist earlier today for, for regular teeth cleaning. Uh, and I can't do anything. Right. Dentist is busy. The gal's cleaning my teeth, doing what she does. I can't, at, at that time I, I can't be talking. You know, she's not asking me questions. I can pray. Right. It's not going to be the most earth shattering world changing prayers, nor do I feel a guilt trip. You better pray. You, you got free time in the dentist too. You better pray. But it's like, I could just sit here mindlessly thinking about a million other things, or I could say, Jesus, 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 I want you to be glorified in me. So at one point, they had to get an impression on something for a tooth and they Put something in and you can't, you say, just freeze, just hold that, thinking, all right, I can just think about the lady staring at me, holding it, and, or I can say, Jesus, be glorified in my life. In other words, there, there are, There's an expression of prayer that can come from our hearts along with the times of separation, along with the times of getting alone. And especially if you just, if you find your life like out of control, you find your life like busy beyond busy, then this, let that prayer habit start to rise. God, there's gotta be more. God, I'm running around like a chicken with my head cut off. God, I'm I'm running and moving and I just, there's no time to stop and be and get with you. He'll hear that prayer. He'll help you rearrange your schedule. And yet I, there's stuff I could comment on in the news. There's, there are always things of interest. In fact, let me just pull this up. I've got a new article on the stream. It's called parents. It's time for some righteous indignation. Parents it's time for some righteous indignation. And I, I say at the beginning of that article, to all parents with children in school you have every right to be angry when your kids, teachers treat you as the enemy when they decide to teach your children something controversial, and hide that information from you. When they insert themselves between you and your offspring, that's unethical, that's evil. To repeat, you have every right to be angry. I, I thought about focusing on the contents of that article today and giving you example after example of what's happening in our schools. But I thought, no, let me just write the article, post it, you can read it. I, I, I want to devote this show to challenging you to go deeper. I I want to devote this show as a radio host to do what I've done for decades in preaching, but in a different way, in a different field, in a different context to challenge you to go deeper in God. And part of my way of doing that is by sharing inspirational quotes with you. How about this one from Joseph Parker, who was a preacher in England, contemporary of Charles Spurgeon. I posted these in, uh, in an article in 2013, 10 Quotes to Rock Your World. But I've cited these quotes many a time over the years. This is another one that I found on the pages of Ravenhill's Why, Revival Tarries. It inspired Keith Green to write the song, I Pledge My Head to Heaven. But listen to what Joseph Parker said. And please, preachers of the gospel, pastors, Christian leaders, please hear this quote for yourselves. The man whose little sermon is repent sets himself against his age and will, for the time being, be battered mercilessly by the age whose moral tone he challenges. There is but one end for such a man. Off with his head. You had better not try to preach repentance until you have pledged your head to heaven. Oh yeah, I'll repeat it. The man whose little sermon is repent, sets himself against his age and will for the time being be battered mercilessly by the age whose moral tone he challenges. There is but one end for such a man, off with his head. You had better not try to preach repentance until you have pledged your head to heaven. Let's chew on that one. Keith Green had gone away to seek the Lord as I remember the story with his guitar, a Bible, and a copy of Why Revival Tarries. That quote jumped out at him as as it's jumped out to me and many other readers through the years. And he then wrote that very reflective, powerful song, I Pledge My Head to Heaven. If you've never heard it, never listened to that song, just get online. Type in, I'm sure on YouTube, Keith Green, I pledge my head to heaven, and you'll hear him singing it. And he pledges not only his own head, but, but his wife, his children, saying, I understand that if I preach the gospel, in truth, I'm going to have to preach repentance. And if I preach repentance, I might be killed. You say, who would kill you? It's happened through the ages, who would kill John the immersive? Why was John put in prisons? Because he rebuked Herod. They rebuked Herod for his adulterous marriage. So he's put in prison. And then he's killed over that. And And the foundational message that Jesus preached, if you go through the Gospels, was repent. That's where it started. Obviously, he's crucified for many other reasons in terms of why the people of his age wanted to kill him. But he also was a repentance preacher. Why were the prophets hated? Why were some of the prophets killed? Why were they all persecuted? Because they preach repentance to their nation. Why was Stephen killed? In Acts the 7th chapter because he preached repentance. Repentance is you've sinned against God. You deserve punishment. Turn to him, turn away from your sins, turn to him and he'll have mercy. That's that's the message of repentance. People don't like it. People don't like to be corrected. People don't like to be told the way you're living is deadly and destructive. You say, Dr. Brown, I don't get it. How, how is this supposed to encourage me? It's to say, have courage and stand strong. It's say, to say to those who've, who've lost heart. You think of Hebrews 12, strengthen the, the hands that hang down the weak knees. People who've become discouraged, Maybe you used to stand strong. Maybe you used to have courage, but you've been beaten down. Maybe you went through a divorce. Maybe you went through a church split. Maybe you went through a a death of a vision or a death of a loved one, and what happened to your faith, and you're just not who you used to be. Maybe this was too costly over a period of years. You lost too many friends. You got put out of too many places. I'm not talking about being obnoxious, being mean-spirited, being nasty, but for preaching repentance, for speaking the truth, for going for it. So you've kind of retreated into this cozy Christianity, this safe spirituality. Sorry, but there is no cozy Christianity and there is no safe spirituality. Following Jesus is costly. Following the truth is costly. There will be opposition. There will be trials. There will be tests. We have been made for that but be encouraged in Jesus, we overcome the world. Let me me give you one more quote before the break. David Brainerd, the missionary to the Native Americans in the 1700s, died as a young man of tuberculosis. He said, when I really enjoy God, I feel my desires for him the more insatiable and my thirstings after holiness the more unquenchable. Oh, this pleasing pain, It makes my soul press after God. Once more, when I really enjoy God, I feel my desires of him the more insatiable and my thirstings after holiness the more unquenchable. Oh, this pleasing pain makes my soul press after God. May we all experience that pleasing pain, that holy draw, that must-know-God-more-deeply and must walk in, in greater holiness and commitment. May we walk with that and live it out of that pain. Something beautiful will be birthed. All right, got a few more quotes to share with you. Stay right here.
0: the line of fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Yes, yes, yes.
1: We will be talking about what's happening in the news. Yes, yes. Tomorrow, Thoroughly Jewish Thursday, we'll catch up in the Jewish world and take your Jewish related calls and all kinds of questions on Friday. All that remains the same here on the line of fire. Yes, we will seek to be your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. That's why we're on the air. That's why we've been doing this daily for more than 13 years now with joy. What a great privilege. And thanks to podcasts, which have been downloaded millions of times. And thanks to various ways people can connect with us on the internet, social media, able to reach large numbers of people. We're grateful for that. I'm humbled by it. I take it with the utmost seriousness, which is why from time to time, we'll just seek to inspire you and challenge you and and help light a fresh fire of hunger for God and desire for Him. So I'm not here to, to preach at you, but I am here to say, come on, come on, there's more. Come on, think about it. Live in light of eternity. If we could step out of this world, think about it. If we could step out of this world into God's eternal presence, see the eternal rewards of righteousness, see the, the eternal results of rejecting God, see the glory of what's to come for the saved and the horror of what's to come for the unsaved, see the unspeakable majesty and beauty of the Lord and the indescribable nature of his grace, how would we live if we came back into this world? I'd say differently than we currently live, wouldn't you? And I'd say a lot of things that are really important to us wouldn't be important anymore. And a lot of things that are not important become very important. All right, a few more quotes to challenge you, to encourage you. How about Amy Carmichael from Ireland, ended up serving as a missionary in India and served there for, was it over 40 years without ever coming back, I mean, just gave herself to the people of of India, serving for decades and decades without a furlough. Listen to what she said. Satan is so much more in earnest than we are. He buys up the opportunity. Well, we are wondering how much it will cost. Another one that pierces the heart. Some of us, to be honest, live much more zealously for the devil before we were saved than we live for Jesus. Now than we are saved. Think, How could that be? Some of us gave ourselves more wholeheartedly to sin than we've given ourselves to the Savior. It makes no sense. One thing led to destruction, the other to eternal blessing. One thing was brought no benefit whatsoever, temporary pleasure with a lot of pain. The other has eternal rewards. And then we have our debt to the Lord. Satan is so much more in earnest than we are. She said, he buys up the opportunity we're, we're wondering how much it will cost. And then a few more quotes to share with you. And these, these are all in my article, 10 quotes to rock your world. If you just search on the askdrbrown.org page, Just search 10 quotes or rock or Rocky world, you'll find it very quickly. How about this from G.K. Chesterton, one of the great Christian thinkers and apologists of the last century. Chesterton said this, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. Let me read that again. And I'm just going to read a few more and let them sink in with, with very little commentary. Christianity has not been tried and found one. Yeah, we did this and lived it out. It's just not true. It doesn't work. But rather, it's been found difficult, not tried. People fall short of giving themselves heart, soul, mind, and strength over a protracted period of time to really living out the gospel. Because if they did, they'd find there is no lack in Jesus or the cross. And then Leonard Ravenhill, a dear friend from the years 18, not 18, 1989 to 1994, from ages 82 to 87 for him and 34 to 39 for me. One of The great honors of my life was to, to be his friend and to, to sit at his feet and listen to him. He said this, one of these days, some simple soul We'll pull up the book of God, read it, and believe it. And the rest of us will be embarrassed. One of these days, some simple soul will pick up the book of God, read it, and believe it. Then the rest of us will be embarrassed. You know, sometimes we go to pastors and leaders, go to commentaries to find out why the things that are written in the Bible aren't for today. Isn't that strange? As opposed to saying, Lord, if you said it, if it's for today, I embrace it. I take hold of it. You say, yeah, but it often doesn't come to pass, so we, we stop pressing in, we stop praying? Or is that all the more reason to say, God, there's gotta be more? I have a new book coming out in October, Revival or We Die. And I talk about that very thing in the opening chapter, there's more, there, there must be more. If God is who he says he is and the Bible is true, there must be more than what we are currently seeing and experiencing. And, and I'm, not, I'm not moved by what I see, ultimately I'm moved by what's written. Because of what's written, because I'm a sola scriptura guy, because the Bible is the authority for faith and life for me, the word of God, and nothing else is in its same stratosphere. Because of that, I'm challenged to believe for more. I'm challenged to say, God, there must be more that can glorify you on this earth, that can draw people to you. And there, there must be more for us as God's people, because there so many scandals, and I'm not throwing stones, so many lives falling apart so many couples that start well and don't make it there must be more we can have in God must be more that can help us walk in obedience so that things would look different let alone see miracles and praying for the sick and the like how about this James B. Taylor I would often quote this to students in our ministry school the world may frown Satan may rage but go on Live for God. May I die in the field of battle. And as I've said for many years, what the world calls fanaticism, and much of the church calls extremism, God calls normal. James B. Taylor, I believe he lived in the 1800s. The world may frown. Satan may rage. And listen, if you live for Jesus, the world will frown, and Satan will rage. Live for God. Go on. Live for God. May I die in the field of battle. In other words, if I'm going to go, let me go on the front lines. Let me go preaching Jesus. Let me go living in holiness. Let me go standing for righteousness. Let let me go doing the right thing. The field of battle can be right within your own home, right in your place of business, right within your own church building or on the mission field. Let that field of battle see that you stood strong. And then Thomas Brooks, one of the Puritans, and they had these pithy ways of expressing themselves. He said this, if God were not my friend, Satan would not be so much my enemy. Yeah, certainly, certainly Satan hates the human race, wants to destroy the human race. But all the more, if you are a friend of God, you'll be marked. Let it be. Let it be that God looks down says, that's one of my friends there. Can you think of that? Can you imagine that Jesus calling us friends? Yeah, that's my friend. How should we live? What should that mean? Let the devil be angry. Let him rage because we're known as really being God's friends. How utterly and extraordinarily wonderful. And then lastly, William Booth, co-founder of the Salvation Army with his wife, Catherine, he said this, the greatness of a man's power, is the measure of his surrender. Hear it again. The greatness of a man's power is the measure of his surrender. So what's that mean? That your spiritual power is not so much measured by outward signs, that that your power in God is not so much measured by the things that people see around you, although that can, that can be an indication. But the, the real measure is how deeply your life is surrendered to God, how much you belong to him, how much he's your all in all, how much you make quality decisions. Come on, this is living by faith, right? Living by faith is not just raising the dead, which I've never done physically. Living by faith is is not just laying your hands on someone born blind and seeing them instantly healed, which I've never done either. Seen God do some amazing things, but no, never seen those things myself, my own life. Living for God, living by faith can also mean we're homeschooling our kids. By the way, it's not to criticize those that don't, but for some, that's living by faith. All right, we're going to lose a salary have to trust God, but, but we feel the school system in our area is really aggressive, liberal, nasty bad. we got to pull our kids out. That's, that's a faith decision. It could be, okay, I could get this promotion if I'm dishonest, but that would dishonor God. I'm going to have to tell the truth. Even if it costs me my career, I cannot allow this corruption in my company. That's a faith decision. It could be a faith decision to sell your possessions and go on the mission field. It can be a faith decision to obey God and share the gospel with a coworker, knowing what the consequences might be. It can be a faith decision to say, okay, I'm saying no to this, no to this, no to this, to seek God earnestly and pray, come in a million different ways. I'm just saying, friend, there's more, there's more. Don't live the rest of your life without finding out what God could do through a life fully yielded to him. The old quote that changed D.L. Moody's life, I share it with you in a little different form today. Go for it. Live for God.
0: Another program powered by The Truth Network.